important. I'm the uh, uh, director of the Middle East Centre here at Don School of Economics. But more importantly, we have three expert uh, and excellent speakers to talk today. First, we need to thank Roham because it was his initiative that put together this event and a few others afterwards, I think. And uh, he'll be editing the volume to come from it, which will be published by Cambridge in a few... Uh, anyway. Oxford. Oxford, sorry. Well, we're going to run from 6.30 to 8 o'clock. Each of the speakers will speak for about 15 but certainly no more than 20 minutes and that will leave at least half an hour for discussions. We're very lucky and honoured our first speaker is Ambassador John Limbert who is the class of 1955 Professor of Middle Eastern Studies at the US Naval Academy. More importantly he spent 34 years in, in, a, in a diplomatic career mostly served in the Middle East. He's lived in Iran uh, as a university and high school teacher and then in the US Embassy and um, where he was a hostage from 1981. But equally, probably not more importantly for him, what he's going to say today, from 2009 to 2010, he rejoined government as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Iranian Affairs. He will be the uh, middle speaker. The first speaker is my old friend and colleague, Dr. Christian Amory, uh, the, part, the, um, the author of an excellent book that I recommend, because if I don't, he will, that you go out and buy Good U.S. Back. foreign policy and the Iranian revolution. He taught with us for many years at LSE, but sadly we lost him to the University of Plymouth, where uh, he's now freshly ensconced, uh, surfing and breathing that fresh air that we can't get in London. <laughs> and finally, Rohan uh, Alvandi, who's an assistant professor of international history at the LSE and the author of Nixon, Kissinger and the Shah, the United States and Iran and the Cold War, which will be published just after you stop buying uh, Chris's book. You can then run out and buy Roham's book with OUP in 2014. So they'll all speak for about 10, oh no, so 15 to 20 minutes. So they won't speak any longer than uh, uh, 20 minutes. Chris will go first. John will go second and Rohan will go last. Uh, and you hold your breath because you've got some really impressive PowerPoint slides that I've always been privileged. <laughs> so without further ado, Chris. Thank you. Um, obviously it's an honour to be back and a privilege to be sharing the platform with uh, colleagues and distinguished speakers. Former colleagues. So my role, obviously we're talking about uh, the kind of historical <coughs> efforts to improve relations uh, uh, with Iran. And uh, my role within that is to talk about the first attempt, the first engagement between the US and post-revolutionary Iran, obviously uh, during the Carter administration. Um, I want to talk fundamentally about why this attempt failed, but I also want to talk about how some of those failures may have been overcome, or at least what the legacy of that period is for contemporary uh, relations. Um, in other words, What's the U.S. doing uh, much better now than it was in 1979? Now, when thinking about the Carter legacy, uh, specifically in Iran, but actually a lot more broadly, I think it's worth saying that, that comparisons with Carter are rarely intended to flatter. Uh, in fact, they are almost always politically motivated hatchet jobs. Uh, uh, in, in, a, in a sense, that's probably one of the first notable comparisons that you can make between Obama and Carter. Is that they both faced a, a viscerally uh, partisan uh, Republican party that was shifting much further to the right. Um, if anything, Carter perhaps had a little bit better insofar as the Democrats controlled both houses. 
Um, but just to give you a little sort of flavour of how Carter is used as a kind of partisan stick to beat democratic presidents, you only got to look at, for example, after the hit on uh, on uh, uh, Bin Laden, when Mitt Romney, who was who was challenging Obama uh, for the White House, retorted that even Jimmy Carter would have given that order. <laughs> when uh, when Obama failed to uh, launch an ill-advised attack on Syria, uh, Nile Gardner and other right-wing uh, commentators said slammed him as being even more feeble than Carter uh, when he uh, essentially abandoned a brutal dictator in the form of Hosni Mubarak uh, another uh, piece was written saying he was selling out old allies like Carter with the Shah and to return to our theme of Iran it said uh, another piece uh, by pursuing a diplomatic solution with Iran Obama was much like Jimmy Carter because he was proving to the Iranians and the Islamic world in general that America is on the decline so essentially, America, for many uh, kind of partisan right-wing debates, Carter is a kind of byword for indecision, weakness, perhaps even pacifism. Um, and we can dismiss it, basically. But much more scholarly uh, contemplation, I think, has, has focused, uh, obviously, on the, uh, the peace process that was broken between uh, Egypt and Israel, a peace that has largely helped to rule out the prospect of interstate uh, warfare between the Arab world and, and Israel. I think uh, more recently uh, a lot of work has been done in trying to sort of connect the Carter Doctrine and actually that the strategic pivot that Carter started towards the Persian Gulf and actually try and establish some linkage between that uh, and sort of contemporary uh, affairs. Um, this is essentially based on the fact that at the start of the Carter administration, uh, Carter uh, embarked upon a very large, wide-scale interagency uh, review, which was initiated by a Presidential Review Memorandum 10, that basically concluded that the US needed to have the same capacity to project power into the Persian Gulf as it did in Europe and uh, in Asia. It basically said that since then, uh, since the kind of Nixon years, there's been a projection of, Ameri of, of Soviet uh, power, there's been declining American capabilities, allies are getting jittery, they don't think that we can actually live up to the security guarantees that we're, we're giving them. And even more presciently, a risk analysis by a well-known uh, political scientist by the name of Samuel Huntington uh, pr produced a, 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 a risk assessment that actually highlighted Iran as the, the, uh, the country that America should be most worried about. And this is back in 1977. And actually, in August 1977, Carter signs in this uh, presidential directive 16 which actually establishes most of the things that we're going to see later in the Carter Doctrine. The, it calls for the creation of a rapid deployment force it calls for increased rhetorical uh, hard line against Soviet meddling, uh, it calls for more naval power, more bases, uh, strengthened uh, alliances essentially all of that was largely ignored. That report didn't get past the office of uh, Brzezinski, the National Security Advisor largely because the State Department uh, didn't want to prepare allies for it, they didn't want to tell Europeans that they were shifting priorities away from them, uh, the Pentagon didn't have the budget to create a rapid defence force, the CIA didn't think that there was a problem in, in Iran, uh, NATO wasn't interested, so it really took the twin geopolitical shocks of, of, of the Iranian revolution in 79 and then the Soviet invasion to actually kickstart 
this strategic pivot. And in that sense, a lot of the recent scholarship looking at the legacy of Carter has sort of tried to, to pre- present Obama clearing up the mess started by Carter. Um, by ultimately kind of ending or rolling back that, that large-scale military commitment. It's not an argument uh, I personally would support, and I've never... Uh, and and this, uh, this was actually repeated in, in, in a, a recent op-ed in the Washington Post where a very prominent professor uh, at Boston College said, what Jimmy Carter began, Barack Obama is ending. Washington is bringing down the curtain on its 30-plus year military effort to pull the Islamic world into conformity with American interests and expectations. None of the former U.S. officials I've spoken to, including John, would say that you were embarking on a project to pull the Islamic world into conformity uh, with U.S. interests. I think the subsequent growth of of U.S. uh, presence in the Persian Gulf was much more ad hoc and not surprising, considering it was reacting to some very different uh, threat perception events in the Arab-Persian War, a post-Cold War inter-Arab War, the rise of rogue state discourse, new patterns of WMD proliferation, changing norms on liberal intervention, growth of transnational terrorism, and perhaps uniquely a bout of ideological hubris that was actually exasperated by 9-11. So I don't think there's any question of Obama mopping up the mess left by Carter, but I do think... Uh, we need to discuss uh, a little bit what the actual legacy of, of, of Carter has been, particularly uh, to, to the dysfunctional state of, of US-Iranian relations. Then again, what we have to do is we have to distinguish between the kind of events that we have here, when we, we can academics talk about the legacy, but also the legacy as that exists in these kind of dueling, mutually demonising, competing narratives that I think Rohan will talk about. And the myth versus the reality. And in my own work, uh, my, the book project that I've just finished, uh, really tries to provide a very detailed corrective to the narrative of Carter's legacy in Iran, as presented by the Iranian government. And at the centre of that narrative is the claim that Washington never accepted the revolution and that immediately set out to destabilise post-revolutionary Iran. And according to this kind of discourse, the Islamic Republic bravely and serenely survived despite this kind of immediate and sustained effort to destroy it. Um, For example, that the Supreme Leader uh, said a couple of years ago, there hasn't been a day in which America has had good intentions with Iran. This is also uh, very much part of the, uh, the discourse that, that, that drove one of the original sins, the, the hostage crisis, the siege of the American embassy in November 79. Now, calling the embassy a den of spies was not just a kind of rhetorical flourish or a sense of revolutionary catharsis. They actually believed that the embassy, at least the students did, was an actual, you know, a place for planning conspiracies, these activities. Again, uh, Khamenei, the the Supreme Leader, says, from the beginning of the Islamic Revolution, they made the embassy a place for planning conspiracies, and these activities led the students to attack. So my motivation was to kind of debunk this narrative and say, actually, uh, uh, no. Uh, On the contrary, to the claims of the Iranian leadership, uh, there was no instinctive instinctive American hostility towards the Islamic Republic. And actually, rather than attempting to destabilize the Islamic Republic, uh, Washington ultimately fretted, was worried about destabilization, and uh, likely seeing it as as the sort of the precursor to Soviet adventurism. 
So my book really sort of shows about how the Carter administration went to significant lengths to try and repair relations. But I didn't want to sort of, you know, I don't want to present a kind of one-sided portrayal of, of Iranian paranoia and, and, and American good intentions. There's obviously a lot of good reasons why Iranians doubted American intentions in 1979 that I don't probably need to go into. Um, but they did, and I show a lot of ways uh, in which they did negotiate with good faith, but that good faith was not enough. The manner in which they pursued engagement uh, was pursued in a way that probably guaranteed its failure. Uh, not that necessarily restoring relations was an achievable goal at the time, but certainly it wasn't in the way that they pursued it. So why was that, and what can be learnt from those failures? Now, the first failure, I think, is the way that the Americans pursued an engagement which was very much accord to realist, pragmatic, hard-nosed Cold War ideology. The, Iranian revolution had collapsed America's Cold War security uh, framework, uh, it had deprived the, uh, the, of its strongest ally, uh, the loss of, 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 the, of the biggest customer for sophisticated weaponry, uh, the loss of intelligence facilities vital for monitoring the Soviet compliance with SALT, or SALT II. So what the US initially tries to do is it tries to construct a, a new framework which essentially resembles the previous one. It says, listen, you've still got the Soviet threat, you've still got an internal communist threat, uh, you know, we still have a lot of, of, of mutual interests, uh, intelligence sharing, economic ties, let's try and rebuild a slightly less lucrative, a slightly less visible version of what we had before. So it's very much a strategic alliance. Um, for example, Ambassador Sullivan said to uh, Secretary Vance in a memo, we both start from a basic opposition to Soviet encroachment, we must build a new relationship from there. Uh, and I think Charlie Nas makes the same pitch when he goes around to all of the, the, um, the, the ministers in Iran. It's certainly what was informing Brzezinski's thinking when he, he meets uh, uh, Bars again in Algiers. Now the problem as I see it is that actually they're up against a regime that is fundamentally trying to dismantle the Cold War paradigm. They're trying to dismantle the idea of Iran being a site for superpower competition. And I think any China attempt to, to, to rebuild that was, was largely a non-starter. And the reason why I say that the lessons learned, perhaps, is because at the moment, I don't think the US is actually asking for any greater influence in Iran. It's not talking about ambitious strategic alliances or, or building a large strategic chessboard. Gone is any sense, I believe, of, of, of constructing a, a kind of a, a real formidable strategic alliance. What we're talking now is a very narrow process focused on two countries trying to avoid a crisis. So whilst in 79 engagement was much about rebuilding uh, and ultimately greatly enhancing America's position in the Middle East, Obama is trying to, to reduce America's footprint in the Middle East. So, so, so in that sense, I think it, it's, it's, it's going off a better footing from the Iranian perspective. I think the second failure in 79 was the manner in which engagement was targeted on specific elites in Iran. Those who were generally considered moderate, Western educated, uh, understood the world in, in, in terms understood by the Americans. Henry Prept, who headed the State Department's Iran desk, identified the key objective as preserving America's position by securing access to the new Iranian political elite and shaping a pro-US regime in Tehran. 
And this is the classic elite-driven model for US diplomacy. Uh, you know, trying to access elites who speak English, whether it's from Chalabi and Iraq, trying to maneuver them into positions of influence. Um, and a lot of what I look at is the process by which the US identified these elites, judged them to see the world in their own ways, and tried to sort of help them position themselves in the new post-revolutionary uh, system. It obviously failed because the US had built trust with individuals, but built trust with individuals who were really powerless to uh, advance American interests and ultimately done it with the wrong people. Now, what we see now is the US, I think, or particularly Obama, the missing ing ingredient has been a level of trust, but not direct trust. I don't for a second think that the Supreme Leader trusts America any more than Khamenei did in 1979. But I do think he trusts Rouhani. And I do think Rouhani trusts Sahidi, and I do think the Americans trust Sahidi and his people. So there is, in a sense, a trust being built, but it's being built with the right people. And I think it's not the sense of we're just going to target those who we consider moderates, and there's this binary identification of radicals who we contain and moderates who we try and engage. I think that that instinct, which very much came after the revolution, uh, has finally started to be uh, rethought. Failure three. I think uh, accepting that the Iranian regime or the re Iranian system is not going to change soon. I think in the US in, in, the 19, in 1979, the, they had no reference point for understanding a regime that was run by clerics. They had no sense. They had very little actual contact with political Islam at this point. The general consensus was that the, in the long term the revolution would moderate itself, the clerics would not be able to run a, a, a modern state, uh, either the moderates on the left or, 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 on, or on the nationalists or would take over. So in other words, there's a kind of modernization theory that's driving this. Um, I think the lesson that we can draw from this is that uh, US engagement now has essentially given up on the idea that it can affect change inside Iran. I think this was very much seen in, in, the, re in the response to the 2009 uh, Green Movement, where Obama essentially sat back, did not publicly align themselves with that movement. Uh, I think correctly, I think it would have hurt them even more. Uh, I think that Obama ultimately has decided that the Islamic Revolution or the, the Islamic Republic is not going anywhere soon. We cannot just count on a load of moderates uh, emerging. Um, lesson four. I think if you look at engagement in 1979, it was well-intentioned and it was very badly managed. Uh, Carter provided very little leadership. Uh, he didn't meet with many of his senior uh, staffers rota staff rotating uh, into uh, Iran. I know he didn't meet Charlie Nars. I, I know he. Uh, I don't think he, he met Bruce Langan. So I don't think he was really driving things in the way Obama is driving things now. Uh, Brzezinski, in the words of his deputy Gary Sick, walks away from Iran policy. Vance is preoccupied with salt and with the taunt with the Soviets and, and, and with the Arab Peace uh, Initiative. The bureaucratic state of, uh, or the, the largely dysfunctional bureaucratic state of the Carter administration decision-making process didn't help. Uh, and engagement was essentially left to a rather beleaguered, understaffed set of embassy staff operating in, terror, in Iran generally uh, under pretty terrifying conditions. Um, and I think a lot of 
mistakes were made, particularly in the way the US stumbled into a power struggle, uh, with Sarah Madari, um, the rather unhelpful intervention of Brzezinski meeting uh, Barzagan in Algiers. Um, I think even when you look at the top decisions when they were made by Carter, they generally got them wrong. For example, letting the star into the US. I think what strikes me now is that the management of US Iranian diplomacy has is being one of the most sophisticated, impressive pieces of set managed or stage managed diplomacy uh, we've seen from in a long time. Certainly in the way the kind of the back channel diplomacy, the amount of secrecy that we're able to maintain the use of kind of highly selected gatekeepers within the media to kind of leak various angles that come through, uh, the manage the way they've got basically the foreign policy establishment behind engagement in the op-ed kind of war. Um, they've used sort of social media ranging from kind of New Year's messages to, to, uh, to the kind of carefully choreographed telephone call to Rouhani. So I think it's a, we're seeing a very sophisticated process at the moment. And I think understandably in 1979, it was a lot more ad hoc. It was a lot more kind of feeling in the air and not particularly uh, much leadership going on. Um, so I'll kind of draw things together. Now, one of the three things, if we're looking at kind of what has been driving the dynamics of US policy in Iran? I think if you look at it, the, the, the major shifts have all been driven by changing perceptions of, of, of threats and capability and public opinion. Now, uh, Nixon basically he was driven by the idea that there was a power vacuum left by the British with, after their withdrawal. He was also driven by the fact that he couldn't introduce large amounts of American forces after Vietnam. Therefore, he had to rely on regional proxies. Therefore, we get the twin pillar policy. Carter, his kind of back tilt towards the Persian Gulf is also tries to reverse that. He says, listen, uh, actually we can't rely on proxies. Um, the balance of power between the Soviets and Americans has changed. The threats have increased and therefore we need to project American power in there. I think Obama is kind of engaging with Iran because he actually substantially wants to withdraw American military commitment to maintain the security. I think he believes that the US policy has failed because it has been overly militarized. I think he believes that the major threats to US interests lie elsewhere and he wants to fundamentally avoid uh, anything. So, ultimately, the legacy of the Carter period for me is no doubt some poor decisions, not accepting early enough that the, the Shah was doomed, not opening links with the opposition early enough, allowing the Shah sanctuary, some very clumsy diplomatic initiatives, and a misguided Cold War footing for engagement. That said, the main legacy is that the Iranians couldn't get beyond the burden of their history. They misread US intentions believing that the US had not accepted the revolution and were planning a coup in sort of 53. So in the end, the, kind of the confrontation was engineered by Iran, and the irony was that the, the, the Iranians essentially helped to dismantle a US government that actually had no desire to destabilize it. Uh, many of its successes sadly did, and this reinforced the view that America's confrontation with Iran had started immediately after the revolution, when in reality uh, it, it hadn't. I'll stop there because there's a big stop sign. So.
Even out of you need to... So we move down to the left side. Oh, you got it. Sorry. Okay. Okay. As I was uh, as I was listening to Chris's excellent uh, present presentation, I was thinking, you know, uh, poor Jimmy Carter can't catch a break. Thirty <laughs> I mean, some years later, uh, and he's still getting he's still getting the blame. Um, however, I, I do a lot of when I speak in the United States, and if the um, if the audience is um, largely Iranian American and of a certain age. Uh, Jimmy Carter is not a very popular figure there either, but for different reasons. I should say, by the way, he's also a graduate of the school where I teach now, the U.S. Naval, the, the US Naval Academy, and had quite a distinguished career as a, as, um, as a naval officer. Whatever else you say, he's a very smart, very smart man, still very active. But I, I know what it's like. I mean, personally, um, if you... If you deal, if, if you you talk about if you talk about Iran, at least in in Washington, it's a very emotional subject. People get uh, very invo very involved in it. So, and I have advocated for a, a long time, very consistently, that we need to look at our Iran policy and think about. Um, other ways than just calling them names and threatening them and insulting them. And for that, I have taken my share of criticism. Uh, my, some of my, some Americans, some of my compatriots who are, do not agree with me, call me the, they call me the Manchurian candidate. <laughs> Spent too long in captivity um, and was, you know, turned into a mole for the other side. My Iranian friends, who are somewhat more direct than my American friends, use a word, let me, I won't say it here, but let me just say it has the suffix kesh on it. And I won't go any farther than that. Those of you who know Persian will know what I'm referring to. Uh, what I'm referring to. But uh, by training, um, by training I'm a historian. So, of course, I have to go back to the Medes and the Persians uh, when we talk about Iran, and I'll explain that a little bit later. But let's, let's start with some uh, more recent history. Uh, and let's go back to 2008, uh, 2008 when then-Senator Obama was running for president. And he looked at the situation with Iran over, since 1979, and here's what he saw. Basically, since 1979, we and the, the United States and the Islamic Republic have been on this road, essentially a road that goes nowhere. Now, if I were better with computers, I would Photoshop this and put some wrecked cars <laughs> along the side of that road, which were aborted attempts to change or improve the situation or get off the road. I should also say, as a, foot, uh, uh, as a footnote, and Chris knows this very well, um, you could say I was there when the contract was let. 
for building this road or when the road was origi uh, originally built. But uh, President Obama and could look at the situation with Iran and said, basically, this is where this is where we've been for uh, since 19 for since 1979. In that time, about 30 uh, uh, about 30 years. And so during his, during his primary campaign, um, he raised the issue, and this was in 2008, and he said, uh, if I'm elected president, I will, um, I will talk to Iran. We need to talk to, we need to, talk to our adversaries, including, um, including the Iranians. The question isn't whether we like them or not. The question is doing so is in our, it is in our interest to do so. Of course, um, he was very seriously criticized by his then primary opponent, Senator Hillary Clinton, uh, who in the way of the great way of American politics then after, uh, after Obama's victory goes on to be his Secretary of State. Uh, and the President continued in his inaugural address in uh, 2009. He said to the Muslim world, we seek a new way forward based on mutual interest and mutual respect. And he continued. Uh, there he, um, at Nowruz, at uh, the Persian New Year, um, he sent greetings, um, which were traditional that the American president would do, but in a very different tone and a very different content to both the Iranian people and the Iranian Govern, um, um, and the Iranian government. He continued he, his speech in Cairo in June. At he spoke of a new beginning. Um, even in, in, uh, in, and in December at his uh, Nobel Prize acceptance speech in Oslo, he spoke of the uh, spoke of that uh, of that subject. Uh, and but the problem, if you look and you say, okay, what were the results of this? What were the results of this effort by the president to get off of this road to change a policy that from a U that did not serve US interests and to change it into something more productive? Well, for four years, not much. Um, in Diplo speak, which I used to speak pretty well when I worked at the State Department, uh, you could say that the results were disappointing. <laughs> I think that's the word you could use. Now, the question I ask my, my students, uh, usually it's their final exam, is why not? What happened? Why was this not? Why did this not succeed? I mean, from my point of view, and I was in the state I was in the State Department for about a year from 2009 2010 I took leave from my teaching position to go um, to go there uh, by all I could see the effort to change this relationship to get off this road was a sincere one it was not a sham it was not a it was not a fake it, you know you could argue maybe it was well done maybe it was badly done but it was a sincere effort so why didn't it work well, let me suggest two reasons. One, uh, I think, I think uh, Obama's statements caught the Islamic Republic off guard. They really did not know how to respond. When he spoke to them of mutual respect, 
something they always said they wanted spoke of mutual interest. He quote, he sent them uh, greetings on New Year's. He quoted Saadi to them. What do you do with someone like that? How do you respond to that? With an enemy, with a George W. Bush, it's very easy. He's your enemy, so you're his enemy. It's very easy to respond. But now, they were not facing an enemy. They were facing something much more dangerous. A rival. And the word they used to describe it was Havu. <laughs> Havu means co-wife. Co-wife. More younger, more attractive, and more dangerous. <laughs> Very dangerous. And that's what they were facing. And so I think for about it took, you know, they they were caught off guard. It took them quite a while to figure out how do we respond? to someone like this. This is something new and something dangerous and something actually dangerous. The other thing was I think both sides or did not realize how difficult it was to to uh, escape what I call the iron laws of the Medes and the Persians that alter not. <coughs> This is from the book of Daniel. We're talking about the 5th century BC, the 5th century BC. And here you see some of those laws. And the law, these laws were literally written in stone. Well, you can't come along and push delete or anything else to change them. It's quite a job. So we and there were a set of rules that seemed to have governed US Iranian relations for a very long time and were very turned out that it was very difficult to break them. Now I don't read cuneiform, but I suspect that this tablet translates roughly as this. And here are my here are the what I call the five commandments or the laws that seem to govern US-Iranian relations for quite a long time. I mean, they're pretty self-explanatory. If you see an open door, don't walk through it. It's much more fun to bang your head against the wall. That's, never say yes to what the other side proposes uh, because you'll look weak if you do. Uh, never trust three and four really come together never trust them because they are always up to something there's always a trick we just heard it from Chris I think quoted some quoted something to that to that effect people in Washington people in Tehran uh, they get up every morning and the first thing they think about before they brush their teeth is how can I do damage to the other side today what bad thing can I, can, can I do? They're always up to something. Uh, the last one uh, we'll talk about later. Someone or something will, will come along. Just when you're making progress, um, someone or something, bad luck, or, uh, will come along and screw things up. And uh, we've got lots of examples of that. Um, the axis of evil speech um, 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 is one, but there are, there, uh, uh, there are others. So basically what happens is for four years we're caught, the rules are turn out to be tougher to get out of these rules than we think. 
the Islamic Republic is caught off guards, and so there's really no progress. And when things failed, what happens? Well, we go back to what we know how to do. Uh, it may not be in our interest, it may not be productive, but we know how to do it. We know how to, we knew how to bash each other. People, careers in Washington and in Tehran were built on how well you bash the other, uh, bash the other side, and that's what we did. Uh, that's what we did. And in effect, we had not moved on from 1979. And here's the sort of the last, the here's the last high-level meeting. Uh, between uh, the U.S. Secretary of State Cyrus Vance uh, on your left and Ibrahim uh, Yazdi, his uh, Iranian counterpart, in October of 1979. Now, this was a time when the two countries still had diplomatic relations, so they could at least speak officially. And they met in New York um, at the UN in October of, seven, of 1979. By all accounts, and you can read both the American and the Persian and the Iranian accounts of this meeting, it was a disaster. And it set the tone for the next, the next uh, 34 years. Okay, now, if I were giving this talk a year ago, if we'd been holding this meeting a year ago, I would probably end it here, on a very down note, I would say. But things are changing. And it looks like the two sides are maybe able to break the grip of those rules. They may be inching away slowly from an abyss. I mean, for 34 years, the two sides, we and the Iranians, what have we done? We've, we've stood on a opposite sides of an abyss, we've glared at each other, we have insulted each other, we've threatened each other, we've threatened each other, we've called each other names. I mean, they are um, rogue state, they are axis of evil, we are world arrogance, uh, great Satan, and all these things, and, and all these, and that's what we did. But maybe, maybe, just maybe now things are changing. And whether, whatever you think of the current Process of uh, the current, sorry, uh, the current negotiations. Uh, we are, whether you like them or not, I mean, in Washington, the opponents, they call it a new Munich. A new Munich. In Tehran, I understand they're called a new Turkmen Chai. Now, in Washington, you have to explain to people that the Turkmen Chai is not what you get in a Starbucks. <laughs> but they don't know what it is. But uh, they don't know what it is. But that's what it. But even if that's what you think, you still cannot deny that we are in a very different place from where we were um, a, uh, a year ago. Uh, we have these, here you see uh, Secretary Kerry um, and Foreign Minister Zarif uh, uh, meeting in New, meeting in, uh, in New York in, in uh, 2013. And they, they, when they meet, but what is interesting is when they meet, uh, they call their meetings positive and productive. Now think about that. When was the last time 
any encounter between the U.S. and the Islamic Republic was called that. Either of those things. This is very different. Again, think of the 1979 meeting. Think of the difference. Uh, it's a new vocabulary. Not only that, but Hassan is talking to Hossein. <laughs> First time in history the two presidents are talking, are talking to each other. So, question is now what? Uh, we are on, we are, I think, on unfamiliar territory. We're on ter unknown territory. We have no maps for it. We have no charts for it. It's, it's, it's tricky and it's, it's treacherous. We're in the land of yes. And we've never been there. We haven't been there for a very long, very long time. Uh, so we're doing what we haven't done for 34 years. The reality is that this new path that we are on with the Iranians is it's going to have setbacks and problems. They're inevitably going to be. 34 years of mistrust just doesn't go away quickly. The question is, how do we deal with them? There will be, for example, there will be misstatements. Uh, you recognize this as a DNA molecule. Um, I don't know if it's Iranian DNA, but I'm told that there's deception in that Iranian DNA, according to one of our officials. I, I can't see a deception piece in there, but maybe some of you can. Uh, 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 some of you can. But there will be misstate. There will be unfortunate statements like that, and there will be some unfortunate. Uh, missteps, missteps, uh, you, such as, the, for example, uh, proposing the gentleman on your left, uh, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Abu Talibi, as the Iranian uh, ambassador to the United Nations, having with his, with his history of association with those who were our hosts for 14 months <laughs> in, Tehran, uh, in Tehran. You can only ask yourself, what were they thinking? What were they thinking? Or were they? Uh, but again, uh, Iranians do not have a monopoly on such things. You see on, on the right, uh, 20, this is Richard Helms, uh, 20 years after the CIA coup, CIA, uh, coup that uh, uh, toppled uh, Mossadegh and his National Front uh, government, who does the United States propose uh, send as ambassador to Iran? The former head of the CIA. <laughs> Uh, not the most culturally sensitive sort of uh, sort uh, sort of move. The difference was, I suppose, in those days, the Shah couldn't say no, so they uh, uh, so they got him. But the enemy, in fact, I mean, the great enemy is not, you know, it's not all, it's not so much evil or bad intentions. It's obliviousness. You know, the the fact, the problem being that. Um, we're going to have pro there are going to be problems. There's going to be missteps as long as each side remains once the sides remain oblivious to the other and how it will see what it does, how it sees this appoint this appointment or that appointment, for example. But these missteps, these misstatements, will happen. I am certain of it. I don't like to predict things about Iran, but that I will predict. The question is, can we 
despite that, keep going. Can we keep a, can we talk to each other? Can we engage with each other? Can we keep negotiations open? My my military friends, from my military friends, I learned a wonderful phrase. They would say, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. <laughs> and that's what we have to do, despite these things. Can we keep the main thing? First, can we identify it, and then can we keep it? Okay, um, by this time, thank you for your patience. Um, by this time, my students uh, at the Naval Academy are just on the edge of their chairs, uh, brimming over with questions, uh, as you see here. <laughs> so I eagerly await the question from you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ambassador. That leaves uh, Rohan to bring it all together, tell us what will happen, and draw uh, the formal part of these proceedings to an end. Rohan. Thank you very much. Um, Okay, so uh, Chris and, and, and John have talked to you about high politics, and let me just say how um, grateful I am to John and to Chris for accepting the invitation to come. Um, it's always good to have old friends here, but it's a particular honor to have uh, John Limbert with us who, despite the way that we treated him in Iran, <laughs> you can see uh, is what we would call not only Iran Shenas, but a Iran Dus. You know? That's quite remarkable. Um, anyway, so what I want to talk about is a little bit more ephemeral than high politics and all this kind of stuff, which is what I normally study. I'm basically a diplomatic historian. But um, uh, what I'm interested in is uh, the relationship between history and detente and what will need to happen uh, at a social level in terms of the relationship between the American people and the Iranian people if this detente is ever really going to get anywhere beyond you know a secret meeting in Oman or on the sidelines of a meeting in New York yeah what is that going to look like can we even imagine such a thing as a normal relationship between Iranians and Americans. Yeah? And so I'm a historian, so where do I start? I start with history, of course. Um, and there's a lot of painful and difficult history in this, um, uh, in this uh, uh, relationship. Now, 2013 was a big year for the history of US-Iran relations. I mean, John um, touched on that. There was more direct contact between Iranian and American officials in that one year than in the last 34 years before that combined. Okay? Including the telephone call between Hassan and Hossein, <laughs> which the Americans were hoping would have been a face-to-face -face meeting, but I think my impression is that the Iranians kind of chickened out at the last moment and they settled out, settled for a telephone call. Um, but uh, what I'm more interested in is, is how, we're gonna, how we're still still debating and still writing the history of this relationship from as long ago uh, as 1953 and the Anglo-American coup that toppled the government of uh, Dr. Mossadegh. Um, and why it is that we still cannot talk openly and honestly about this event. 
This is still a matter of disagreement uh, in terms of openness and secrecy between the United States and Iran, and as you'll see, between Britain um, and Iran. Um, so uh, and there's uh, Kim Roosevelt, who is the uh, uh, nephew of Teddy Roosevelt, who was the, uh, the main CIA operative who, who was involved in the coup against Mossad. Now, most of you probably have know something about the CIA role in 1953. It's, it's the worst kept secret you know, in the world. Okay. Um, uh, but uh, it is still uh, front page news when uh, the CIA releases a document that actually says that there was a CIA role in that coup. Now, why? Is, that's, what I, that's what I find curious and interesting. Why is that? Okay. Um, well, it's because, I think one reason is because both sides realize that history and detente are connected. And both sides try to use history as a vocabulary to, uh, and as a means to build trust uh, with each other. And the, and the person who started it, I think, to be fair to him, uh, was President Mohammad Khatami. Uh, uh, President Khatami, as you all know, was elected in a landslide victory in 1997, and he went on CNN, and he had a very famous interview with Christian Amanpour. Um, and uh, in that interview, Amanpour tried to get him to apologize uh, uh, for, for what happened to John and his colleagues in, in Tehran. Um, and the best that Khatami could do is he said, well, with regard to the hostage issue which you raised, uh, I do know that the feelings of the great American people have been hurt, and of course I regret it. Okay. And a number of the hostage takers who were involved in the hostage crisis and subsequently became reformists in Iran have expressed similar Sentiments. Now, this is an extremely dangerous thing to say in the Iranian context. There are many people in Iran, including in the leadership, who would violently disagree with this statement that any regret should be expressed for what happened in terms of the hostage crisis. Right? Uh, and as part of that detente effort between the Clinton administration and the Khatami government, um, uh, a few years later, Secretary of State Madeleine Albright gave a speech on, uh, at around about the time of Nowruz in front of the uh, Iranian uh, lobby group, the American Iranian Council, and she said, uh, in 1953, the United States played a significant role in orchestrating the overthrow of Iran's popular Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh. The Eisenhower administration believed its actions were justified for strategic reasons, but the coup was clearly a setback for Iran's political development. And it is easy to see now why many Iranians continue to resent this intervention by America in their internal affairs. This was the first time that a US government official had, had uh, officially acknowledged that the United States played a role in the overthrow of Mossad. Yeah. So you can see that they're talking to each other, using history to build some kind of trust. Now, why does history matter? Well, it's painfully obvious, but let me say it anyway. Um, because every, people have long memories, uh, and you know the most recent example, of course, is uh, is uh, the you know attempt to send Ambassador Abu Talavi to to New York, uh, uh, and uh, despite his 
denials that he had anything to do with the hostage crisis, that he was just brought in as a translator for the students and so on and so forth. Um, the Obama administration really had no choice but to quite firmly uh, uh, block this appointment. And in fact, Congress has passed legislation authorizing the government to uh, uh, prevent anyone who had anything to do with the hostage crisis uh, from going to New York. Um, now, I'm, I want to tell you about another episode that you probably never heard of because you don't live in my little <laughs> academic bubble, okay? Um, but this is one of the great controversies uh, in my world, okay? And it's the controversy over something that's called the Foreign Relations of the United States series, which is published by the State Department. And what it is, is it's a series uh, which uh, uh, basically uh, uh, they are, each volume is a collection of US government documents relating to a particular country or region and they're published sort of chronologically over time with a roughly 30 year lag. So right now they are publishing volumes from the Carter administration for example. All right. Now, uh, in 1983, uh, they were supposed to publish a volume, 30 years after 1953, on U.S. policy towards Iran uh, and the story of Mossadegh and, and the coup and so on and so forth. Um, and, and, you know, it takes a great deal of work and planning to publish one of these volumes because all of these documents have to go through a very rigorous declassification uh, process. Uh, and this, unfortunately, that process started around about 1978, which was a rather eventful year when it comes to um, Iran. And uh, uh, it was eventually published in 1989, and when it was published, it contained no reference whatsoever to the CIA role in the coup. And this caused a huge stink amongst academics and professional historians. Um, the chairman of the advisory committee to the Fruce series, uh, Professor Warren Cohen, resigned. Um, he wrote an, uh, an op-ed in the New York Times. Um, uh, 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 another academic by the name, name of Bruce uh, uh, Cuneholm, who had been, worked in the State Department himself on the policy planning stuff, wrote a review of the volume, and he called it a fraud. And this uh, actually became, you know, it managed to go beyond our little bubble and actually became part, you know, a, a major political issue, and Congress actually passed legislation requiring uh, that the uh, that the Fruce series uh, should be a quote thorough, accu accurate, and reliable documentary record of major United States foreign policy decisions and significant United States diplomatic activity. So what do you do then? Well, um, not much. That volume sat there stinking away for a good decade until the year 2000 when uh, somebody, and we don't know who, 
leaked a copy of the CIA's official history of the coup that was written by Donald Wilbur, who was one of the operatives involved and was himself a historian and archaeologist. Um, it was written after the coup, as basically for training purposes the CIA officers, because they were so proud that they managed to overthrow um, Mossadegh. Well, somebody leaked this to the New York Times, to James Risen, whose picture's there, uh, uh, and uh, uh, they published it. Now, I don't know who leaked it. It could have been Donald Wilbur himself, who got pretty screwed over over the publication of his memoirs, because the CIA wouldn't let him tell everyone what an important role he played in the coup. It could have been Kim Roosevelt, who died shortly after it was released. Maybe he wanted to be you know, immortalized. I don't know. Um, it's all speculation. We still don't know. But um, that prompted a decision to, uh, by the State Department to begin considering um, publication of a new volume that would acknowledge uh, uh, the CIA role. And in 2002, um, the Office of the Historian at the State Department actually began working on this new volume. Uh, and this was very creatively done by a joint historian who worked for both the State Department <coughs> and the CIA. <coughs> and that volume was finished in October of 2003. And we are still waiting for it to be published. And the historians at the State Department tell me that it will be published this year, but I'll believe it when I see it. Okay. Um, now, why is that? Well, most people think the reason that this holdup has happened is uh, because the CIA doesn't like revealing its what they call methods and sources. It sets a bad precedent. Yeah, because if you tell them about this, you'll have to tell them about all the other nefarious things that they've been up to all over the world. Okay? Um, but there are people in the world, like my friend Malcolm Byrne down there, who works at the National Security Archive at George Washington University, who relentlessly file Freedom of Information Act lawsuits and requests demanding the release of this information. Because in a democratic society, we have a right to know what the government is up to, and we have we should hold them accountable. Okay, so uh, as I said, most people think that this has to do with uh, uh, with CIA secrecy, but actually, the CIA last year, in response to one of Malcolm's requests, actually released uh, one of, a, a second official history. Okay, so this. If it's not the CIA that's blocking this information from getting out, then who is it? Well, uh, I'm sorry to say that it is the Foreign Commonwealth Office. Uh, at least that's my, my, uh, uh, con the conclusion I've reached. Um, uh, very recently, uh, uh, a series of documents were released uh, that show that in 1978, when the release of this document was originally proposed, uh, the British government intervened and, and uh, put significant pressure on the Carter administration not to release any US government documents that made any reference to the British role in the coup. And as you know, um, the British government until recently didn't even acknowledge the existence 
of the secret intelligence service, at least we know it exists now, we know the name of the chief, um, uh, but the British government has never released a single piece of paper or anything which acknowledges the British role uh, in the coup. Uh, and uh, they are doing a pretty good job of blocking the State Department historians from uh, uh, getting uh, these documents out and getting them to historians so we can um, write this history. Now, again, it's the worst kept secret in the world that Britain played a role in the overthrow of Mossadegh. This man, Monty Woodhouse, who was the chief SIS operative in Tehran, wrote a memoir, in, I think it was published in 1986, in which he boasted about it. And that was cleared by the Foreign Office. So why don't they want this to come out? Why are they um, uh, uh, blocking it? Well, my sense is that what, what, what they're afraid of is that it will open the door to Iranian demands that the British accept responsibility for the coming to power of Reza Khan in 1921, or the famine during the First World War, etc., etc., etc. In other words, the Iranians need... It works both ways. Yeah. The CIA, what they will tell you is that, well, the CIA released all this information, and what did the U.S. get out of it? Did it result in the Iranian government saying, oh, well, we're grateful that you acknowledge it? No, the Iranian leadership said, well, uh, I told you so. You know. um, and what this does is it just feeds the process of, of mutual mistrust, the, the immutable laws that, especially four and five, mm -hmm. which, by the way, is, could equally be applied to academic politics, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but what it does is it feeds that process. Yeah? And 1953 is just one of these historical episodes or events that continues to play the relationship. There are lots of others. There is a popular myth in Iran that Jimmy Carter conspired to overthrow the Shah. Here's the image of the Shah visiting the United States in November 1977. The Washington DC police fired tear gas at the demonstrators and there's the Shah wiping tears from his eyes. And this was broadcast in Iran. You can imagine how, what people thought of that. Yeah. Um, there is a very strong memory in, in Iran of the United States' support for Iraq during the Iran-Iraq war. Yeah. There's Donald Rumsfeld shaking hands with uh, Saddam Hussein in December 1983. And there is a very distinct and painful memory of the downing of Iran Air 655 in July 1988, where hundreds of innocent people lost their lives because a very sophisticated American ship, the USS Vincennes, mistook, apparently, this Iranian airliner for a uh, F-14 jet. Right. Now, you know, Chris and I can spend the rest of eternity writing these academic books debunking these myths, but um, that is not going to have anything like the effect of President Obama or President Rouhani making a single one-line statement, you know, acknowledging responsibility or acknowledging the hurt that has been done, uh, and more importantly, releasing the documents 
and showing transparency and building trust between the two governments. And I, I very much hope that as relations between Britain and Iran improve and if these embassies ever open, that maybe the British government, even if they're not going to release their own files, will at least let the Americans uh, release some documents that acknowledge the British role in the coup. Anyway, I'll stop there.